0: Well, good morning. I have to say, uh, I was thinking back, and I think this is the first time that I've ever preached uh, from an archaeological dig before. And so, uh, I hope that uh, that's not going to mess my mojo up this morning. I was I was actually going to going to stay in the tent until it was time to preach, and then come out and make a little 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 showmanship there. But I don't know if that would be the best idea. So. Decided not to do that. Um, James Patterson and Peter Kim wrote a book in 1991 called *The Day That America Told the Truth*. And what they did was they went around and uh, and asked people survey questions with the promise of anonymity, so that they could answer truthfully. And one of the questions that they asked was. What are you willing to do for $10 million? Now, I know immediately all of our brains kind of went there. What would I be willing to do for $10 million? Now, $10 million today would buy you a nice three-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath <laughs> house in Williamson County. But remember, this is 1991, and so back then, $10 million was a lot of money. And so two-thirds of Americans polled would agree that at le- to at least one uh, and some to several of the following things. 25% of those polled said that they would abandon their entire family. 25% said they would abandon their church. 23% said they would agree to become a prostitute for a week or more. Sixteen percent said that they would give up their American citizenship. Sixteen percent said they would leave their spouse. Ten percent said they would uh, allow a murderer to go free. Seven percent said that they themselves would commit murder. And three percent said they would put their children up for adoption. Money is to say the least, a motivator. We're in week two of a series that we're calling Things That the Bible Does Not Say. And last week, John looked at one of the most popular ones, God Helps Those Who Help Themselves. And if you missed last week, I would go back and listen to that as John did an excellent job showing that not only does the Bible not say this, But this is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Spiritually, God helps those who can't help themselves. But what we're looking at today is a a little bit different. This is a, a misquote of the Bible. And that misquote is, money is the root of all evil. Now this is taken from 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. And so what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say that money is the root of all evil? If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open that to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And if you're new to the Bible, it's kind of towards the back of the Bible, after 2 Thessalonians, before 1 Timothy, you'll find it there. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to begin in chapter 3, I'm sorry, in verse 3 and read through verse 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit And understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And for quarrels about words. Which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind. And deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptations, into a snare, into Many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There are over 500 verses in the Bible, and we're, we're going to look at just half of those today, but I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. There are over 500 verses in the Bible that talk about money, that talk about possessions, that talk about greed, and money in and of itself is just a thing. It, it, in and of itself it's it's merely a, an exchange of value there is nothing inherently good nothing inherently evil about money for generations commerce was just a matter of bartering so you have a thing and then i have another thing and then we exchange things that's that's what commerce was for generations and generations and then uh, later the governments got involved in it and they started minting coins that represented value, and they minted these out of gold and out of silver and out of copper, and then in the process of that, gold and silver and copper developed some kind of value, and then we moved from that on to paper currency, and then we got checks, and checks are just a weird thing, right, where you you say, "This, this person is vouching that I have money, right? They here's a, here's a, you know, who you can talk to if you want to get the money. And so uh, it's kind of a weird thing. Now today we have all kinds of weird currencies that I know nothing about. I know nothing about Bitcoin. I know nothing about any of that kind of stuff, e-commerce, all that stuff. I'm not your guy to talk to about that. But anyway, money in and of itself is just a thing. And so how is it that we are to think about money? Well, if you have your bulletin your, in your notes, number one on your notes, money is a useful tool, but it is a terrible master. Money is a useful tool, but it is a terrible master. New Testament scholar William Barclay wrote about money. He said, money in, it, uh, in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It is simply dangerous in that the love of it may become bad. With money, a person can do much good, and with money, a person can do much evil. It's a tool, and it's a useful tool to be sure. And so, you know, if you're here today visiting with us and you are a person with lots and lots of money, let me just say, welcome to Providence Baptist Church. (laughs) You have a tool that we would love to put to use for the building of the kingdom. And if you are a believer, this is the right way to think about money. If we look a bit further over in 1 Timothy, and if you... I want to turn across the page there, starting in verse 17, going through verse 19. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Be rich in good works. Generosity is to mark the Christian life. John Piper says this, talking about this verse. He says, But if a person is rich, what do you say to them? What you say is don't trust your money and be rich in good deeds. Now, being rich in good deeds is probably going to deplete their barns. I think it will. I think a person who comes to Christ as a very, very rich person will start finding ways to divest himself of excesses. I don't think God minds us being channels of a lot of money. You make a lot of money, you give a lot of money. Money is a tool for kingdom building. And that's the way we are to think of it if we are believers. Generosity. A tool can be used to build or a tool can be used to destroy. If you were around during the time, uh, during the past few weeks as we've been building the, the food pantry, a hammer is a good example. Lots of days, hammers just ringing all throughout this, this campus of lots of people coming and building the food pantry. Lots of nails driven in the food pantry with a hammer. But I could take a hammer to that same building, the hammer that was good in building it, and I could do a lot of destruction. With that same hammer. How I use the hammer determines its goodness. And money is the same, it's a tool. And if it becomes our master, we will never be content in this life. Never. Which leads us to number two in your notes. Number two in your notes, the sin of greed has a deep root. The sin of greed has a deep root. Now, at the time that Paul wrote these words, there was a similar saying that was going around the Greek world. And it was written by a philosopher named Bion around 100 B.C. And Bion had written years before this that the love of money is the center of all evil now paul changed that when he wrote about it and he he said the root of all kinds of evil now if you've ever worked in a a flower bed or a garden you understand how this works if you've got weeds in the garden it doesn't work just to pull the tops off the weeds because they're coming back, right? you got to dig down. you got to dig that root out. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, don't let your heart be consumed with possessions. And it really is a battle of the heart. Because the heart wants stuff. It's a battle of the heart to believe that God is wise. It's a battle of the heart to believe that believe in God and his fatherly that God is fatherly in his disposal of wealth. Now, first and second Timothy uh, and the book of Titus is what is called a the pastoral epistles. So 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, these are called this because these are are letters from Paul, who is a veteran pastor, he's a veteran elder, and he's writing these letters to two young men who are planting churches. And Paul is writing to them about these pastoral matters, these, these things that are related to life in a local congregation. And so this is not just friendly advice from Paul. What Paul is saying is, look, this is the stuff you need to get right. This is the stuff that you have to get right as you pastor these people. These need to be the patterns and principles for living life together. And so in verses 3 through 5 of this passage that we read, he's saying that sound doctrine is key. Understanding what sound doctrine is is, is key, knowing what that looks like. Look at verse 3 with me again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicion. What Jesus says is important. What Jesus gave us is what we need to hang our hearts on. Not some kind of new teaching, not some kind of secret thing that no one has ever heard before, which is what Paul is dealing with here and and what he's talking about. What Jesus said. And notice what Paul says that this leads to in verse 3 godliness. And this word godliness appears in verse 3, verse 5, and verse 6. As a matter of fact, it appears 15 times in the New Testament. 13 of those times, 13 of those 15, are used in first, sec, first and Second Timothy and Titus in the pastoral epistles. Sound doctrine transforms your life so that the truth is lived out in godliness and in holiness. So that we know what that looks like. That's what it produces in our life. It produces a gospel centered commitment to Christ. And in verse 5, Paul goes on to tell us one of the key motives of these false teachers. These are, are men who are looking at godliness as a means of gain. In other words, they are seeking to get rich off the gospel. Now, I know that that's the reason that I got into ministry was the money. Just kidding. You don't go into ministry for money, right? And this was written some 2,000 years ago, but quite honestly, Paul could have written this yesterday. And we just had a, a really good example of, of a false teacher who, who uh, used his position at the church... To get control of a nonprofit that one of his, uh, two of his uh, members had started and, and embezzled lots of money just down the road from us. But the most common false teaching in churches in the English speaking world today is the false teaching that God wants you to be healthy and God wants you to be wealthy. And if you're not, it's because you don't have enough faith, or you haven't spoken it into existence, or you haven't figured out the secret code, that this secret prayer that no one else has found, and I've got the answer to, just buy my book and take this prayer cloth and you'll be good to go. And this garbage, and that's exactly what it is, this garbage is called the prosperity gospel. And it is no gospel at all. This false gospel is not just popular here in the United States. It's popular in some of the poorest places in the world. Why? Because you don't have to be wealthy to be greedy. This is a gospel that feeds the flesh. This is a gospel that feeds the desires, the evil desires that are rooted in our our hearts. And when you're poverty poverty stricken, your temptation is to want what you don't have. And these false teachers come along and they say, God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be healthy. Healthy. And if you're not, it's, it's a problem with you. And I've sat with people and wept with people in one of the poorest places in the world, in Haiti, whose faith has been destroyed because they believe this. And then money didn't come. But sickness did. Now what? That's why the prosperity gospel is plain and simply evil. And Paul wants to make it clear this is not what Christianity is about. The gospel does bring great gain, but Paul wants to make it clear, it is not the kind of gain that these false teachers are talking about. The great church Father Augustine said, the love of worldly possessions entangles the soul and keeps it from flying to God. We get tangled up. In this love of possessions. We get tangled up in the stuff of this life. Everything around you is screaming, don't be content. Everything around you is screaming, you deserve more. Go out and get it. You can't be content until you have the next thing. This sin of greed is a deep root. Look at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And Paul is saying here, when you understand the true gain of the Gospel, you're going to be able to rest in His provision you're going to be able to rest like you've never rested before. No matter how much or how little you have. There was a a minister that was doing a funeral of one of his congregants and this congregant was a very, very wealthy man. Multi-millions of dollars. And he gave... The eulogy, and after the eulogy, one of his congregates came up and said, So, Pastor, let me ask you, how much did he leave behind? How much really did he leave behind? And the pastor looked at him and said, All of it. He left it all behind. That's what Paul is is telling us in, in verse seven. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, the struggle that we have here is different than the struggle that our brothers and sisters in Haiti have. We struggle with the sin of plenty. We struggle with the sin of comfort. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you make $50,000 or a year or more, you are wealthy in the eyes of the world. You are in the 1% of the most wealthiest people in the world. Now that is kind of hard to believe, right? Living here. We're tempted to view Him as a means to get what it is that we really want. Instead of loving God and using the world, we use God to get the world which we love more than God. And that's what Paul is warning us about in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul notes here that the love of money is more. Paul notes here that the the love of money is more deceptive. It, it's a trap. That greed leads you to sin in other ways. We see it all through scripture. We saw it, we see it with Judas, with Achan, with Ananias and Sapphira. King Ahab, who had everything and still wanted Naboth's vineyard. Those who are greedy will do anything to get it and anything to keep it. And Paul is just saying to us here, watch your heart. Guard your heart. Because it is easy for any of us to fall into this snare. It is easy for any of us to fall into this trap, especially when the world around us is telling us you can never have enough. Verse 10. This is Paul's warning For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so Paul answers this question. Paul doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. This is not some proto-Marxist speech. Paul, this is not some rant against capitalism, but it is the love of money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When our desires are centered on things, when our satisfaction is in things, when our security and our comfort is based in our bank accounts and our heart is in trouble. This is convicting for me. This is an area that I struggle just to be straight up. That idea of having a nice little nest egg, you know. But that's when our heart is in trouble. And he also doesn't say that it is the root of all evil. There are other kinds of evil. And he talks about many of those in this very book, in the book of 1 Timothy. But here, Paul is focusing on money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And listen, this is what it all boils down to. And I heard a pastor say this years and years ago, and it has stuck with me ever since. All sin problems are worship problems. All sin problems are worship problems. God is to be our first love. God is to hold the position of first and foremost in our hearts. And when we put anything... In that place, it leads to all kinds of evils. And it leads to us wandering away from our first love. I think of the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and he asked him, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and what did he say? Go and sell everything that you have. Go and sell all of your possessions. And come and follow me. And the rich young man walked away sorrowfully. Why? And the Bible tells us he had a lot. He had a lot of stuff. And his commitment, and his fulfillment, and his satisfaction were in those things. And there he was, standing in front of his God and his Savior. Standing in front of Jesus. And he walked away. Because he had chosen to serve things rather than serve God. This is why Jesus is so concerned that we use material blessings, not worship them. We are to put our hope in God and not in goods. And that leads us to point number three as we close. God is better than goods. Back in verse three, Paul urged us to to look to Jesus Christ for sound doctrine. And so that's what we're going to do as we close. We're going to look at Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 15. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. You can just listen and I'll read this. Luke chapter 12. And he said to them, this is Jesus talking, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession possessions. Jesus is talking about this is not where your life is found. This is not your identity. And then he tells them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself. What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and all of my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul. I have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. Is that not a picture of what we see around us today? Not a even a second thought about God, but eat, drink, be merry, live it up. But God said to him, fool, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Remember what Paul had said that it is that we are to be pursuing. Pursuing. We are to be pursuing godliness. Godliness is being rich toward God. And so as we close today, that's that's my question. Are you rich towards God today? Do you have communion with Him? Is he what is satisfying you? Or are you consumed with just building bigger and bigger barns? What does your energy go towards? What's your heart captivated by? Listen. This is not to say that that hard work is not good. It is. We talked about that in here. Joe's preached about that. But it's a matter of what your heart is captivated by. What are you working for? Jesus goes on in in Luke to say this verse that is, popular verse where your treasure is there will be your heart we build bigger barns out of fear and anxiety out of this desire for comfort but jesus says don't be afraid The Father knows exactly what it is that you need. And one day, those who are His, for those that are His, He's going to give you a kingdom. Not just a barn, but a kingdom. Jesus gives us the model of generosity. He was rich and became poor for our sake. And through his poverty, we become rich. Not monetarily, but rich in him. He lived a perfect life, a greed-free life. Free of desires of the flesh, and he was betrayed by greed. 30 pieces of silver. And he died on the cross for greedy sinners like me and like you. That was the death that we deserve. But instead, we get life, we get a faith family. We get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and through that Spirit, we are empowered to live generous lives. That is good news. Let's pray. Father, Lord God, Father, we thank you. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become his righteousness, your righteousness. Father, we thank you for the example of generosity that we have in our Savior and Lord Christ Jesus. And Lord, it is my prayer that we would seek to live generously. That we would seek first the kingdom of God. That possessions and things be put in their proper perspective. That You bless us in all kinds of of different ways. And Father, help us to be content in your fatherly distribution. And Father, we just uh, thank you for the way that you love us, the way that you provide for us that you hold us fast. And we give it to you this morning for it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.